Welcome back to our final episode of this series of the Emerge podcast. My name is Tom Neely, Housing Sector Lead at Berwick Partners. Today, I was thrilled to be joined by the inspirational Carol Matthews, Chief Executive of the Riverside Housing Group. In this podcast, we talked to Carol about her humble beginnings and what drove her to become the best she can be, but also what drives her today, particularly as she takes her organisation through a merger with one housing group to become one of the biggest landlords in the UK. I hope you enjoy the podcast and thank you once again for taking time to listen. Carol, firstly, thank you and welcome to the Berwick Partners podcast Emerge. For the listeners who may not know you as well, could you give us a brief introduction of yourself and your organisation? Okay, well, I'm Carol Matthews, um, Group Chief Executive of the Riverside Group, which is a charitable housing association at its heart um, that provides general needs, care and support, extra care, but also has commercial businesses. So we have a number of joint ventures building new homes and new neighbourhoods, and we have our own outright market sale provider. And I always like, especially with this accent, um, to, to, to say that we're international because we've got a Scottish Housing Association as a subsidiary called Riverside Scotland. Um, and I'm particularly proud of that because um, it means I get to talk to people who keep this accent polished. <laughs> Brilliant. And, and obviously, we've known each other for, for a significant period of time now, and you are an incredibly uh, successful chief executive in the, in the sector. I mean, can you share with us a bit about your own personal journey to today and also why, why housing? Why did you pursue a career in this sector? Well, it's very kind of you because some days I don't feel incre- incredibly successful. Sometimes I think, what a numpty um, you are, Matthews, because I get stuff wrong um, all the time. So my personal journey with this accent is I went to university in Glasgow, uh, first person in my family ever to do that. And at the end of five years at university, I had a, a master's and uh, was offered a PhD, but it wasn't going to start until the following year. Um, in Scotland at that time, you stayed at home if you went to university. Um, and I was desperate to get away from my mother, who has had the hearing of an MI5 agent. And whatever time of the night or day that I came home, she was always there going, what have you been up to? And um, so I was desperate just to sow some wild oats and, and get away from home. And my pals, my pa- two of my pals were moving to Sheffield and one of them said, and this is what networks are about. One of them said, Peter, that was her husband, tells me that next week in The Guardian, Sheffield City Council are going to be advertising for 100 new jobs, 1984, 100 new jobs um, in the housing department. And Peter says, you should give it a go. So first of all, The Guardian is not a paper that anybody in Scotland really read because you read the Herald or the Daily Record. So because of that network, I bought The Guardian, I opened up the advert and the the confidence um, of, of, of the student thought, I've done an essay on the rent strikes. Uh, my mum and dad live in a council flat. Um, I'm as common as muck. Um, I'll give it a go. And that's what I did. I spent a week, I, I attacked it like an essay, which is I sat in the economic history library. I read everything I could find on housing. I read all the magazines, all the books, all the journals, wrote my personal little bit, got invited for interview, 
and they appointed me. So I did not choose a career in housing. Um, and in fact, sometimes I think my career is in customer service. Mm. Um, it chose me because three months after I joined um, Sheffield City Council, I wrote back to Glasgow University and I said, thank you very much for the fantastic offer of the PhD because it's changed my life because I left Scotland thinking I'm going to come back. But I've now found the thing I want to spend the rest of my life doing, which is helping people. Um, and, and that's what I loved. What I loved, Tom, was um, had my own patch, collecting rent, meant that I saw the inside of people's homes and saw things as a 23-year-old that I had no idea about, even though I, I, I was brought up on, on the rough end of town. And then that opportunity to grow and learn and help people move, get the repairs done, deal with antisocial behaviour, whatever it was, um, I absolutely loved it and, and took to it like a, a, duck, a duck to water. Um, and, and, that's where, and that's where it started um, for me was, was in Sheffield. And um, being angry about how customers were being treated, you know, staff sitting in offices with people that treated tenants like they were, you know, stuff off their shoes. And I'm thinking, my mum and dad live in a council flat and I ended up being a council tenant because when I moved, um, oops, oh, sorry, a phone call came in and because I'm on the iPad and the iPhone, it, it, it cut out. Um, and, and I ended up being a Sheffield City Council tenant and yet people would talk about council tenants as if they were dark. And mm. I suppose that's where my passion for customer service and treating people with respect, that, that's where it all started. Um, and it's just the best sector because we're a mongrel. So you get to do bits of everything, you know, asset management, property, people, systems, um, legal, tenancy. And then the bit that I suppose that I'm known for um, has been the, the influencing. So the opportunity to influence government on behalf of communities and customers um, and shaping the direction um, of housing policy um, has been uh, something I feel really privileged to have had the opportunity to do. And, and I suppose I've been, what, what's the bit that's to do with me? I've been brave enough to put my head above the parapet, yeah, which means yeah. that quite a lot of the time it's been shot straight off my shoulders, um, both by people in the sector and by politicians. Um, but knowing that I'm going after the right outcome mm. um, and knowing what campaigning's about, um, it's an incredible privilege to do that, um, as well as have the opportunity to lead um, a housing association group that does lots of stuff. So that's a bit about me. That's brilliant. Thank you, Cara. And you touched on it there, where housing is such an incredible sector. It's such a purpose-driven environment, isn't it? For examples that you've just given, the fact that you are impacting people's lives, hopefully in, in such a positive way. But for you personally, what's your why? Why do you do this role still? Why do you get up in the morning and do that? And secondly, what drives you to do such a good job every day? I'm not sure I do a good job every day, but I do my best every day. Yeah. And I do the best that I can do. But sometimes, oh, back to the numpty thing. So I, was like, I sometimes don't have great days at work. Um, sometimes through my own stupidity and also just by what Harold Macmillan would say, events, dear boy, events. 
So what, what drives me is the, is the value piece and the social purpose piece. Uh, when the rent cut uh, stuff happened in 2015, and um, you know everybody, everybody went, oh my God, they're really attacking us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I took out the charitable objects of Riverside that had been framed in 1928. And I read those charitable objects again. And I thought, do, the, do these still stand today? And yeah, the language was old fashioned, um, but, it, but it was still what Riverside was about and what I was about, which is we're here to provide housing um, for the necessitous poor, for the workers of the country, um, to help people to get on. And, and, and the language was you know, old fashioned, but it was about being both a safety net and a springboard. Yeah. And, and for me, um, that, that really speaks to um, what I'm about, um, which is that you need a safe, secure, warm home to thrive. Mm. Um, and home is where our lives happen and it's where we build our dreams and it's where everything happens to us and everybody should have a, a, a safe home. And I do believe that having um, a secure home uh, should be a human right. Um, but also everybody should have the opportunity to get on and improve their lives and their, their home um, for themselves and, their, for, the fa- and for their families. And, and, and that's, that's, that's really uh, driven me. And then because I am from the lumpen proletariat and my dad was unemployed and he was a drunk. Um, so, you know, we were in rent arrears some of the time. We were on benefits some of the time about treating those, treating people with respect and also endeavouring to give those people who aren't networked networks is, is, is for me a really, really important thing. It's the difference between a middle-class kid um, and a kid um, from, from a poor estate is the middle-class kid has the access to all of his or her um, parents, friends, family and network and, and, and they're very networked and the poorer you are, the smaller your networks are. And, and, and networks is, and, and you know this because it's, it's what you do. Yeah. It's all about networks. And, and, and so for me, that whole employment and training piece, helping people to get on is, is, is really important. And it should be done professionally without patronage and without paternalism yeah. um, for me as well. So that, 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 that's what drives me on the influencing stuff. What drives me is um, to make things better, to get rid of things that are unfair, like five weeks to wait for universal credit and to go back into poverty. So, so going after the things where the fund we're looking for fundamental improvements in fairness, Tom, um, are those kind of things that, um, that that drive me as well. So that that, that yeah, that's me, and it, it probably feeds through everything I do. Mm. Brilliant. And if we take it a step back, Karen, just talk about your journey. It's fair to say that no journey is ever plain sailing. Can you talk to us a bit about some of your challenges you've faced throughout your career and how you've been able to overcome them? Um, yeah, so I, I've, I've sometimes um, made job moves that, that haven't been uh, great for me. Um, and, and sometimes being in a job that doesn't suit you is actually really good, but you don't know that till afterwards, um, because it helps you work out 
what makes you tick, what what makes you what 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 where where you where you add value. So um I was kind of probably seen as a bit of a rising star in Sheffield quite quickly. And so the opportunity without advert came um to be in a in a project that the director of housing was running, which was a review of the lettings policy for, for the whole of the city. And I was kind of plucked out of my job as a housing officer because we hear you're a graduate and you can do good writing um, and you know how to work the microfiche because um, I did. Um, and that was the that that was the new technology, microfiche. Get Carol to go and check that out for you. She's a whiz. Because, of course, the library at university had all been microfiche. So I was really fast. So I ended up in this Lettons project. We used to have meet, weekly meetings with the director of housing. And I quickly realised it was as dull as ditch water. And that the only way I got human contact was going out and consulting with groups um, about the Lettons policy. Oh, and I hated it, Tom. And what I realised in that job, in other jobs where it's pure strategy, mm. is the light goes out for me because I need people. I'm an extrovert. Um, I, I, I need solar gain from other people and, and, and sitting on my own right and stuff. Yeah, I do that all the time. Mm. I do that all the time, but... Oh, sorry, that, another phone call. Um, uh, the um, I need people. So that those kind of roles have helped me understand they're not getting the best out of me and I'm not getting... I'm not, I'm not enjoying the work. Mm. And I also need customers. Yeah. So anything where I'm in a kind of strategic bubble where it's facing into the business, not out to the customer base, the light starts to go out in my wee soul. Um, and and so those and I did it, I've done it twice where I've ended up in jobs where there's no soul again for me. Um, I, I, I've I've had to work my way out of it, but I've had to do that based on success. Mm. So I've had to do it by delivering the object. So I had you know I wanted to stay in Sheffield. And, and, and so how am I going to get out of this project where the director of housing comes over every week and loves having lunch with all these people doing this bloody project? How can I get out of this and get hopefully promoted mm. and not have a bad reputation as a quitter? So, you know, the, those kind of things where you've got to work through um, the fact that everything's not just about you. Mm. Um, it, you. You actually have to think about your reputation, how you're going to be seen so. I absolutely went all out on delivering. I went all out on volunteering to do all the customer-facing stuff because quite a lot of the strategy wonks don't want to do that stuff. And then I also made sure I went and asked the advice of the director of housing. So, of course, he then thought this was marvellous and absolutely right, and you've done your stint, blah, 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 off you go. And, and I moved from, from that role into being a senior housing officer. So I, I suppose what that, that, that taught me is the... You've got to navigate your way through this. You can't be like a child and go, I don't like this. Throw out the dummy and walk away. Um, and that the world of work is very different to the world of study. So that 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 was something um, that I um, learned. And then the other thing I learned is, oh, check the walk and the talk. So I ended up in a job in Burnley where they wanted me to decentralise the housing service. And I did that in less than 10 months. And they thought it would take me three years. Uh, but what they didn't want was to modernise it. They wanted it to be old fashioned, and yeah. and and it and it was paternalistic and 
I knew that again, this is a backwater and these people, these people just me want me to sound right and look right, but they don't actually want anything to change. Mm. And so again, um, max out your delivery, do as much as you possibly can, make sure you're seen to be delivering and, and get yourself out of there. So I moved from uh, Burnley to, to Bristol. So that they, and when I was in those two jobs, which I've made it sound dead dynamic and positive, the, the days were long, yeah. the weeks were long, and Sunday afternoons were not pleasant because I didn't want to go back. But I, can't, I suppose what I learnt was the resilience of, this is just another problem, there is no cavalry, you have to work it through for yourself. Yeah, no, brilliant. And, and you take it to present day, Carol, you, you mentioned at the beginning when I, I kind of said around you being a successful CEO, you said that some days I don't feel like that. And there is a comment by many chief execs that say it's quite a lonely job at the top. So how do you personally deal with setbacks and then also motivate yourself to, to move on from those setbacks? So sometimes it can be a lonely job, but actually all the time you are alone. Mm. Uh, because the buck stops with you. Yeah. But that doesn't stop you um, building a team around you. And and, and and I'm really, I've built a team around me at, at, at Riverside now where we, we do care for each other mm. um, and we do check out for each other. And I'm, I'm entirely, well, really blessed that if on teams I look like I'm having a bit of a bad day or that I've taken a piece of news badly or I'm upset about something then I've got I've got my colleagues you know texting and calling saying you okay do you want to talk about it you all right and that and that's absolutely fantastic um and for me um having a hinterland and having another life um which has been about being a partner and a mum um and um you know watching my boys grow up that's been great as well which is step away from it um, it's one of the things that I find really important is that when things were tough, I used to think I needed to work harder and longer. And I think as I've got a bit older, I know now the power of walking away, you know, stepping away for five minutes and just going, do you know what? You're flogging this and you're yeah. being a bit of a martyr to yourself. Go, 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 go around the block. And, and when we did used to go into the office, and um, sometimes at Riverside, I would literally go outside and walk around the block and then go into the canteen to get a coffee or a cup of soup, chat to one or two people, chat to people all the way back up to my office, sit down, and usually I would feel a little bit better. So that kind of setback, get perspective, um, for, for me is really, really important. And have another life. Have a life. Don't make yourself a martyr to it. Um, and, and people who have a life are a lot more interesting than people that are completely mono-focused and you're better at your job when you've got a hinterland. I became better and more empathetic with customers once I'd had a child because e even I had the subconscious that said, they don't work. Why are they complaining about us being 10 minutes late? For God's sake, maternity leave with my first son, knowing nobody, uh, the walls were closing in on me. You know, I was desperate to get out. And if somebody didn't turn up on time and I had a, you know, an appointment with a doctor or the baby had to go somewhere or whatever, I'd be climbing the bloody walls. And it made me realise that my arrogance about other people's time needed to be changed. And so when I went back to work when somebody would say that, I'd say they don't work. So actually they need to get out of the house a lot more than we do. 
when I'm not working, I don't want to go anywhere but in my house. If you spend all your time in your house, you want to go out. So not turning up on time for an appointment's a big deal. I didn't used to think that, Tom. It's only as my life changed that, that my empathy for the customer um, increased. So that, that's some of my life lessons. No, brilliant. And, and you talk about perspectives there and changing perspectives, Carol. Obviously, over the last 18 months, it's fair to say a hell of a lot has changed. Um, do, do you think that, however, do you think from your perspective, do you think that's changed your perspective of your own leadership style and also the relationship you have with your teams? Yeah, because my leadership style was be everywhere, get everywhere, be visible, tour around the country, make sure you visit services. Um, and then my blog every week uh, so that I'm visible by telling the story of what I've been doing and also, you know, bits of corporate stuff um, woven in there. And, I'll, and then I'll always finish with a little insight into my life, um, what I might be doing that weekend. And But, you know, and I remember I did one um, at the beginning of May where I said, um, I'm off today because I'm on the way I'm on the way to my mum's funeral. And, and, and rather than it being a really big announcement, because who, who needs to know that stuff? But just giving people a little window in mm. is what the blog does. But not being able to go anywhere, Tom, has meant that you really do need to think about the power of every conversation that you have um, and the importance of saying thank you and making the connections. Because um, I think of the connections through... Teams and Zoom and all the rest of it are looser. It's easier for somebody to shut a laptop on a Friday working for Guinness and open a different laptop up on the Monday and start working for Riverside. So it's easier to leave and it's easier to join. So I think for leaders, the job now is to try and make the connections and the collaboration stronger. Um, and that we do need to get people out of their junk rooms, that's where I am, or wherever it is that people work. Um, and get them in spaces because we're we are we are a clan um, and what I notice is that when I'm with people in a room I laugh a lot more because you're bouncing off each other whereas it's dead easy here when I'm sitting with all the IT around me to get really hacked off and think for god's sake and I miss Jane my executive assistant um, and and Bev my PA um, because they would hear me swearing in the office to myself oh, or they tear me banging about, or I come out and go, I'm going to the. Did you have you seen that email? And then you know we'd have a little laugh and a joke, or they'd calm me down. And when you're doing hybrid working, you're you're in your own little bubble, and yeah. that kind of stuff is harder. And so I think um, what we've noticed is we had a big boost of an improvement in morale with hybrid working, flexibility, getting through it, and that it's dipped again. And I think that's about being in your bubble, this is just going on and on. And how I've described it to my people is, I think this probably feels like 1942 or 43. Um, you know you're at war, nobody's winning, everybody's losing, and you're worried about who's going to die next. But you can see no end in sight. There is no game changing going on. And I think um, I think that's what's going on in the, our, our world at the moment, which is... We're living with this virus. And as we approach Christmas, I think there is quite a lot of trepidation that pe people are worried that Christmas is going to be robbed yeah. from them. Um, 
and they are worried about people getting sick, but they don't want to be locked down. But at the same time, a lot of people aren't going out to restaurants and bars and all that kind of stuff, because whenever I'm in a taxi, the taxi drivers are telling me that. So I think we are in 1942, 1943. So our job is to help people be resilient and keep going and, and try and shake some of that narrative um, and, and soak some of that up and, 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 and not be defensive about the fact that a load of people tell us they, they don't really like where we are and what we're doing at this point in time. Um, I suppose that's the last thing about being a leader at a time like this, you've got to try and work out which bits to sprint at and which bits to kind of go marathon at yeah. and, 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 and work it through in those different paces. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. No, definitely. And, and you talk about kind of the sprint and the marathon just then, Carol, clearly it's well documented. You've been through many a merger at, at Riverside, but also mo most recently you've agreed to merge with One Housing in London to create one of the largest housing associations in the UK. Moving forward, when you are working with your teams and trying to establish change, how do you go about that? And also, how do you take staff on a journey? That's a brilliant question, Tom. So how do you start a merger? Um, um, oops, sorry. Uh, how do you start a merger? You start a merger by talking mm. um, to each other um, and, and you start by getting to know each other. Um, and you start by trying to uh, lay down uh, the ground rules. Um, sorry, that I, I, I'm, I'm getting various phone calls from people trying to sell me life insurance or a funeral plan. Um, so um, you, you, you start by trying to kind of understand each other. Um, Work out what the problems are. Explore what the opportunities are. God, I'm sounding like uh, Richard Branson here. I don't mean to do that. And then lay out some ground ground rules. So, so when Richard um, approached me, because that's how that, that's how it happened, um, and it was it was partly about the fact that he had heard that Riverside were really trying to going. Um, um, we were going to do a lot of development um, in um, uh, London. Mm. And of course, Richard had all the stuff that was going on with these big buildings. And so he could see that his um, um, he's, um, development programme and his great development team um, were going to be um, really impacted um, by that. And that he built that. So he had a real pride in building up a, a development team with, with his excellent development director but they could only do so much work. So Richard approached me about that. And that was interesting because it was just at the point at which Riverside was thinking, we've only got two men and a dog in Liverpool. And if we're going to do this big regen piece, we need to get more people. So the timing was great. But I think Richard was brave that on the basis that I was saying, okay, we'd be open for a conversation. I don't know what that means for that and all this kind of stuff. He kind of said, and what would your perspective be about a potential merger or a coming together? And I very quickly said to, 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 to Richard, if we're bigger and weaker, nobody's going to like that. Uh, the banks won't like it. The raters won't like it. The regulator will have a hissy fit. And actually, I can't sign up to something that's bigger and weaker. And if we come to 
together. It has to be bigger and stronger. It ha- in fact, it has to be better and stronger. And so I suppose that became uh, almost like that. That that was the red line. Tom. Mm. So it, so you, so for me, it was that talking stuff through and building trust. Yeah. Which is that it's a bit like um, Richard showed me the stuff that he wasn't proud of or the things where they were struggling, and I did the same. Um, and and I think that helped trust in that the the parent organisation because of course we're three times bigger than than one was the humility on both sides mm. and then being clear what your red line is and then and then shaping a future together yeah. through the conversations on heads and terms. So we actually did a lot of that just Richard and I for two or three months, um, and then we brought in the chairs. Then and almost like it was like a pyramid. Then we brought in the CFOs. Then, then you move it to the board and the executive directors. And then the other thing that we did extensively and quietly was four months of due diligence that nobody in the sector knew about. So that when we announced, we were actually quite a long way um, d- mm. d- d- down. Yeah. But, but that's how you do a merger. You yeah. do a merger by talking, building a relationship, developing trust, be authentic, try not to oversell be really clear about what it is you think you can do together and the outcomes that you're going to deliver. And, and the big thing I've tried, and time will only tell, is having been in a merger where there was a whole load of over-promising to the staff, never mind the customers, mm. um, a lot of less than positive delivery, I've really tried to do the undersell or over-deliver. Um, but working with people's all about relationships isn't it and trust and building it and losing it and developing it um and and that and that's why this i think this merger has happened and the, i suppose the last thing i would say to you tom about this merger being different or maybe i've used this as medicine to some of the other ones that i've been involved in is i said to the team the two teams the two exec teams more than six months ago can we do this really quietly and really boringly, with not a lot of drama, no hissy fits, no shouting and bawling at each other, but listening and working the problem through and just getting on with it. And for people to look in and go, there's no big story here, is there? And and we've delivered that, um, I think, um, because there hasn't been any hissy fits, but we have talked about the difficult problems. And I think that's the last thing I would say about this merger, unlike others, is as a problem has come along, We've taken it apart. We have talked about it. We've maybe upset each other. We've told each other we've been a bit upset about it, and then we've walked through together. Um, and 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 that's that for me. Um, I suppose has been the learning from uh, feeling in the past part of something that's quite artificial. Yeah, and you talk you talk about when when you're explaining that merge step by step. One theme that very clear is that word trust, which is such a powerful words I mean what does that mean to you but also more importantly how do you create trust particularly with people that you don't know delivering on your promises Mm. yeah um, which can be as simple as I'll ring you back at four o'clock I'll come and see you for a coffee Um, how many of us have got friends that the third time they've said they're desperate to see you and then they cancel on you you think it's a load of tripe, this. They keep, they keep on saying how much they want to see me, but every time I make the arrangement, they bloody cancel. 
Um, I, we've all got a friend like that, haven't we? We have indeed. We have indeed. Or, um, or a colleague. And, yeah. and I and work where I say to Jane, don't, don't sweat yourself because they're going to cancel. Um, I, so, so, so reliability is really, really important. Delivering on your promises, um, you have to take a bit of a long game. Um, my, my, my basis with every new member of staff or every new colleague is I'll start from a position of trust. So it's almost on a neutral point. Um, and then it builds based on delivery, openness, um, being up for the, 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 the whatever it is we're trying to deliver. And it dips on doesn't deliver, lastminute.com, tricky, speaks with forked tongue. Uh, you, you, the journey on trust goes either way, doesn't it? It very rarely stays in that, 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 that same um, basis. And, and it's a bit like a bank or a battery. It needs topping up all the time, doesn't it, by that ongoing positive, positive working. And and I think how how have I got to be trusted? And I think I am um oh, quite a lot, is I've been told that other people tell people, if Carol says she's gonna do it, she will. If Carol says she's got your back, she has. And the other thing is if Carol has said something and it ends up being a mess. She will say, "Yeah, I did say that. I wish I hadn't, but I did say it." Um, and, and, and I did think that because at the time that seemed like the right idea. Um, I'd, and that I, I don't throw people under the bus. I, you know, if we made a mess, let let's start from fixing it. And if I've I've been part of it, I will do that. And I don't start by pointing a finger. Um, and they're all just things. There's they've all just things that I've learned. And as you get more senior. Tom and I, I expect this. Some other leaders have said this to you. As you get more senior people tell stories about you, it's not about the stories you tell. It's not. A, I don't think now it's about the stories that I tell about myself. It's the stories, true and false, that are told about me, and um, by 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 other people. And and I, I remember, and this isn't even in Riverside, but I know the story has 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 come to other people in Riverside. Um, I I, I once had somebody report reporting to me who 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 ended up in the middle of a very, very, very big pickle. And um, and uh, the other side in this pickle were all saying, they're the problem, they're the problem, it came from them, blah, 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 blah. And this person was absolutely certain they were going to be thrown under the bus. And in fact, the line manager had kind of, you know, lined them up for the throwing. And I just stepped in front of them and went, no, this is my problem, it's my responsibility. I'm really, really, really sorry. Um, but... Um, yeah, this is this is this is my responsibility. That that happened a long, long time ago, and that person told everybody the story um, because she was so grateful. Yeah. Um, but then that story got legs. So that's the other thing is that as a leader, that leaders need to think about is you can be in charge of your own hyperbole, but the more senior you get, the more places that you move. The, a lot of other people have got stories about you. And that's what you as a recruiter listen to is the stories that are told about leaders and the congruence between the stories that the leader might talk about themselves and what you get from other people. That's so true as well. Yeah, that's arguably more true than you. <laughs> Isn't it just so? No, that, that, that's brilliant. And thank you, Carol. I, I, I found this conversation incredibly fascinating as always. And, and before before I let you go, we, we always like to finish with some quick fire questions um so what what has been the most valuable leadership lesson you've learned read what's put in front of you 
before you sign the bloody thing. I um, was a middle manager at Bristol City Council. Somebody put something under my nose and said, you just need to sign here. I thought for a minute, wonder what this is. Um, I what is it? She said, oh, it's a tenancy agreement. I need your signature. And I signed. And I gave somebody a tenancy that they had no right to. And I ended up for a week trying to bury that bad news. But every time the phone rang or somebody came into the office, I thought they were coming to cart me out. And I eventually had to go ask for an appointment, went to see my, my assistant director, who was Roy Irwin, who became the chief inspector, and told him what I did. And as he stood or sat there swearing at me and telling me what an idiot I was, I stood there thinking, at last I've got my life back. Um, and I just felt like I could be myself again. And he said to me, what have you learned? I said, I'm never going to be such a stupid, arrogant bugger to sign something that's put under my nose to show I'm the big I am. He said, that's fine. Off you go. So bless him. Nothing happened to me. And even though I'd given somebody a home that, that and, and I'd been set up by somebody who yeah. reported to me. So look at things. You might not want to sign 72 pages and um, read 72 pages, but somebody walks into your office, go, what's this? And why do you need me to sign it? And what does it mean? Um, and, and, and as you get more senior, you're often, you know, the deals that are coming. But, but look at what you look at what you sign, because not everybody's straight. No, definitely. No, that's a great piece of advice. And what, what, what advice would you also give to a, an aspiring leader starting out on their journey? Look, listen, watch, volunteer. See how people behave with each other. See the impact. Think about how you'd have handled it. Um, and lap it up, learn, 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 and volunteer. Volunteer for things that you don't know anything about, but say you don't know anything about, mm -hmm. but you're willing to be a trusty helper. That's how I got on. Yeah, brilliant, great stuff. And, and what do you believe to be the key leadership qualities required in today's world? Oh, authenticity. Lovely, lovely, brilliant. And final question, one leadership book recommendation you give to the listeners? Oh, that's really, really hard. Um, but but before I got the Riverside job, a book that was really important to me was um, Jim Collins' Good to Great. Brilliant. But I love uh, Daniel Goleman, um, who's an American academic who who writes about emotional intelligence and right. authenticity. Um, and um, that's been really powerful for me because that used to be when I was growing up as a middle manager to, called um, Girly Skills. Oh, you're good at all that soft stuff, but that's because you're a woman. We do the hard stuff. We do the deals. Um, and actually, it's the emotional intelligence that is important for everything you do. And, and Goldman writes in, in that space. So sorry, um, Tom, I've misbehaved and I've given you um, a book and an author. No, I'll, I'll take them both and run with it, Carol. Th thank you so much. I, I can't thank you enough for taking time to speak with me today. And uh, thank you for, for joining the podcast as well. Thank you for listening to Emerge Leadership Lessons from Berry Partners. If you enjoy listening to this episode, please like, rate and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening.